Hi, everyone. This is COVID, back with another episode of Beyond the Code by Type. Today with us, we have an interesting, amazing guest who is super knowledgeable, 30 plus years of engineering and leadership experience. He is an ex-CTO of an eBay company. He's been the founder of a startup. He's currently working as a CTO coach with amazing CTOs. And the most amazing thing about him is his humbleness. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Great to have you here. Hello, COVID. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Pleasure. All right, Stephen. So before we jump into your experiences and knowing what all wonders you did in your career, we would love to know more about you uh, outside of tech, maybe, so that our audience gets familiar with what kind of person you are. Are you ready for a quick fireside chat with us? Yeah, sure. Perfect. Perfect. First question is very simple. Are you a beach person or a mountain person? <laughs> oh, I enjoy both. I grew up in the mountains, but uh, some years ago I moved to the sea. So uh, I like both. But if I needed to decide, probably the beach. In, in one word, tell me, what do you feel when you're at the beach? I'm amazed by the sea. So I, I'm, I feel amazed. I feel... Uh... All right. Next question. It's been 30 years of experience. But you have to go back you know, memory lane down to the point where you had your first coding experience. Tell us about it. My first coding experience, uh, like for so many, was as a kid. Um, I played video games at the end of the 70s. And I thought, well, I could do that too. I want to do that too. I want to write video games. So I went to a department store. Uh, there were other kids who did some programming on the computers in the department store. I watched them doing their stuff, learned from them imitated them and that's how I got into coding and uh, since then I'm a coder and what I love about coding is essentially creating something from nothing like there's a blank screen and then you can do the thing the computer whatever you want it to do it's like you create something out of nothingness um, and that's uh, still something that I, yes. I really really, yes. really find amazing fun. yes so for all the parents out there video games are not that bad <laughs> no <laughs> All right. All right. Moving on to the next question. I think this is very close to me also. Uh, what would you choose? Like, what do you prefer? Being a founder or being a CTO at a company of eBay? What journey was more fulfilling? I feel both of them are very good, but what's your piece of cake? I think uh, the nice thing about eBay, and I was also working at a large company in Germany, which calls uh, Immobilien Scout, which is a real estate website, the, the largest uh, real estate website, I think, in, in, in Europe. And um, what's nice about working in a large company is that you feel some impact. It's large. People know the company. Uh, so you see people who use your product in everyday life. So you can't go around somewhere and say, I work for eBay. And then everyone says, yeah, I know eBay. Uh, use them or Immobilien Scout. Yeah, I've used Immobilien Scout, so everyone knows it. So that's, I think it's a nice thing of working in a large company. And also you have a lot of money uh, around and you can do a lot of things because uh, you have a large budget and all of these stuff. Um, being a founder of a startup um, enables you then, but, but enables you to better, I think, follow your ideas and your vision. Um, because in a, in a large company, you might be constrained by the company and by the company strategy. And, and so, so there's limits on what you can do in technology. Um, as a founder in a startup, 
uh, there is no limit uh, on what you can <laughs> legal limits, but there is essentially no limit on what you can do. Um, so, so in, in doubt, I'd go the founder route. Um, but I learned a lot in large companies and enjoyed my time there. Perfect, perfect. Thanks for answering that. All right, I think that was amazing. Quick fireside chat with you. Now we would love to move to the main section where we get to know all the wonders that you have done in your career. <laughs> and I would simply, simply start with something that you have been doing right now at Amazing CTOs while coaching the CTOs. What do you think are the biggest challenges a CTOs face in companies like eBay, which are obviously at that scale? What do you think on day-to-day -day in their responsibilities, in their role, uh, what are those challenges that you see these CTOs facing? I think the challenge is... Uh... One of the challenges that a lot of CTOs are facing, and, and it gets more difficult the larger the company, I think, um, is aligning strategy with business strategy. I think that, that a, lot of, a lot of challenges arise in software engineering when the business strategy and the business vision is not aligned with the tech strategy and the tech vision. And um, I think it's paramount for the CTO in a company, um, and it's more, more important the bigger the company, to align the tech vision and the tech, uh, strategy towards the business and be supportive. Because otherwise you move in the wrong direction if you are not aligned. Um, you move in the wrong direction, you make the wrong architecture choices, the wrong technology choices. And then there is a rude awakening at some time because there is a too big of a rift between you and the business. So I think it's very important to be aligned on, on, on business vision, business strategy um, and execute on them. And where, the, where CTO struggle is, First, I think, is bridging the gap, thinking um, from the business side, bridging the gap. And uh, the second thing is they usually don't think there needs to be a tech vision, a tech strategy. They are too focused inside. Um, they think it emerges by, by their actions and by their decisions about technology, but it's not. So they don't have a strategy. They don't have a clear strategy. They don't have a clear vision for technology. And um, that no, creates no, no. a lot of rift and problems. But why do you think, like, I'll, I'll ask a question, follow-up follow question on that. Why do you think the CTOs really struggle with formulating this vision in their heads and then aligning a tech vision or a tech strategy for that? It may be these events arise, these problems arise, but at the core, what exactly doesn't make them move towards this direction of building a good strategy? Is it the lack of understanding of the business needs? Because... Probably CTOs come from a tech background and they have more inclination towards coding and being individual contributor a lot of part of their lives. What, what exactly it is? Why, why, why do they miss out on this bus? I think there are several things. And the first thing is, is really what you mentioned. I so a lot, so the team, not me, but I as someone who takes uh, ownership, um, not of the good results, but of the, of the problem. Um, I solved a lot of hard tech problems with my teams, and uh, but usually this was not something very high on the on the agenda of the CEO. So I did not get a lot of thanks for solving hard tech problems, but I always got positive, very positive feedback on my understanding of business and my my uh, trying to bridge the gap, try to understand business, support business, and stuff like that. That's something that CEO said, Stefan. That's that's good that you're not techie. I can talk to you. You talk in a way I can understand it, um, and you try to explain things. And uh, so I think that's that's very important. And, and uh, CTOs don't 
do that enough, I think. Um, but that's a role. That's part of the role. Um, so yes, from that side, I think uh, strategy is lacking. And on the other hand, I think a lot of CTOs think they don't need a strategy or they don't know what it would be to have a tech strategy, what it would look like. And they, they just go from decision to decision and say, okay, they have some kind of strategy like, okay, we want to move to the cloud or we want to move to the to microservices or something. But they, it's not embedded in, in, in a grand scheme, in a grand strategy and a grand vision, which is aligned to business. So they, are, they have random kind of random strategy steps they are doing, like move to the cloud, move to microservices or move to mobile, uh, mobile native apps or something. Uh, but these are kind of random strategy steps. And I think that's enough, but I think it's not enough. It needs to be a, a wholesome strategy, which gets you somewhere. And that somewhere is a vision where you want to be. Definitely. I think that's interesting. Uh, thanks for highlighting that. All right. So one more thing than last time when we were talking before this podcast, I remember you telling me that it's not about doing more or it's not about achieving high velocity. It's always, always more about delivering more impact, right? So as a CTO, when you step into that shoe, how do you exactly ensure that the impact is getting created? Because as a CTO, let's say you understand what would be the business impact. You at least have direct business counterparts to whom you are talking on day-to-day -day basis to understand what they need. But what about the team who is not interacting and is probably little bit unaware or a lot unaware of what's going on on the business side. How do you make sure these people are more aligned towards delivering impact rather than focusing velocity? Um, I think developers, particularly developers, want to work on impact instead of velocity. I think they want to do things that have impact. So okay. I, I, it's, not only, it's not about the tech team, I think. It's, it's about two things. First, I think it's about business where I need to do a lot of explaining to get them into the impact mind frame in the min mindset and, and to, into, into an impact frame because they often think we need to deliver more and see what sticks. Uh, whereas when I look at, I don't know, know Tim Cook, but I imagine Tim Cook from Apple wants to have a blockbuster iPhone each year and he doesn't care if the iPhone is one released one month earlier or something or two months earlier. That's not the focus. The focus is to have an a blockbuster release, iPhone release, um, sell hundreds of millions of them. And, um, and business needs to get in that mindset. And that's a lot of effort because usually they are more in the, uh, we need to do a lot of things, we need to do a lot of things, do things fast and stuff, instead of we do things to, that have impact. So that's the point. And yeah. their interaction with product or with someone who defines features or defines user stories, epics, or whatever you want to structure software engineering around, I think the important thing there is they need to have impact metrics. You know, they need to, every story needs to have an impact metrics. What impact do you want to have? Like, it might be usage, minimal might be usage, 50% of users are using this, but it might be more, more of an outcome, not only an output, but more of an outcome metric and an impact metric. Um, that's very important. And to follow up on these. So I see organizations who do not in define impact metrics they define revenue metrics, which is a very, very bad idea for various reasons. But they don't uh, define impact metrics. But if they define them, they don't follow up on them. So like, right. we do this, okay, it didn't work, next. And uh, you need to really follow up on metrics. 
that's, I think, is a challenge, like the interaction with the persons who are writing the stories or the epics. With the business side, that's a story um, about the strategy. I feel like developers really want to work on things that have impact, you know, and they don't want to create as many features as possible from my perspective. They want to have work well, on things that have impact. Believe that, uh, I mean, I, I might be coming from a very narrow experience where I might not have encountered that. Thanks for an eye-opener there. Uh, probably developers have that mindset that they want to create an impact. But at the same time, I have one more doubt. And again, it could be something which is sure. very specific to my experience with developers. I don't see that tendency where they want to really get in touch with the customer. Like getting in touch, not necessarily. Yes. Maybe yes. a salesperson would be doing or a, even a product or a user research person would be doing. But taking that information from these business departments to understand what exactly the user feels like or getting into the shoes of the users and then thinking of coding and developing, I feel that there is a resistance. Is that right or wrong? Yes, I think that there, there, there is some resistance there for various reasons. Um, one reason is essentially that developers are very fact-driven, usually, and, you know, the best fact wins, the truth wins. Um, let's discuss this on facts. Whereas other departments are not that fact-based or not that detail-based. They are fact-based, but they are not that detail and analytics-based as developers are. So some other departments want to talk about feelings and about emotions, about how about how we can do this and do that, and and just glance over the details. They don't want to talk about details. You know, they want to marketing, sales, some other departments, and customers. They they talk about the big things perhaps, whereas the, the developers want to talk about the minor things and the details of things. They are they are interested in the small details of things because in the end they need to make it work. You know, and and it breaks in the details. And there are some, some differences between cultures and between understanding. And that sometimes makes it difficult for developers. Um, and then this gets friction and that friction takes effort and, and is, you know, and it's, it's annoying. And out of that, I think, arises something that developers do not particularly want to discuss things. They say, tell me what I need to do. You know, they often unhappy if some, if you tell them what to do because they think it's a bad idea or it's not detailed enough. You know, so on the one hand, they are annoyed by if if you tell them what to do. On the other hand, they say, "I don't care. Yeah. Tell me what to do." So there's some <laughs> there's some. I, I want this, but I also want that kind of thing. So about why I'm asking this question is because this is this whole you like if I, as you said, like the developers would want to create an impact and they would want to develop something that creates an impact. It cannot happen if they don't have the right information if they are not contributing in terms of the discussions with the product yes, managers, yes, right? Yes, yes. And to, to actually first get involved there would make them innately accountable for what they are building, right? If yes. You, again, if you just go tell them what to build, they would not be happy. They would not feel involved in the process. And ultimately, they won't feel getting tied to the business metrics or the product metrics, the usage that you were particularly saying. So I think it has to start probably from the point where the developers have to be put into a mind frame. As you said, they need to deliver a blockbuster product or a blockbuster feature. And to do that, they need to realize that they have to come out of that little bit of a shell and understand what's there on the on the customer side and then start getting involved in the development process with the product. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sometimes can... I sometimes shorten this to developers need to become creators again. You know, my heroes in the 80s were people who wrote video games by themselves, or two people wrote a video game, City Design, great video games like um, Elite or uh, Uridium, Paradroid, 
there are a lot of good video games written by only two people or one person. And there are also good, great software like uh, Lotus 123, Wordstar, VC Calc. But back then, developers were creators. You know, they created things. And today, a lot of developers are executioners. They execute things. They, they create things other people have thought of. They yeah. build for other people. And what I want is that developers get back into the creator mindset and feel as creator because that's also something that brought me into development. So this is something I, I try to tell developers that they would be happier if they could get into a creator mindset. And then sometimes, for example, if, if you send them off to a design thinking workshop and they get into design thinking and then they get, then they get involved into product management, yeah. they are often happy then with being there and making the decisions even if there is some resistance at first, but a lot of them, not everyone, it's not for everyone, but a lot of them uh, are very happy getting back into the creator mindset and being a creator again, instead yeah. of just doing other people's stuff. Perfect. Yes, I think that's, that's what probably I was thinking. All right. I think this was interesting. So that was on delivering more impact, how, how you could actually drive. Now, there is one more thing that we feel that it, it has to come with alignment when you're leading with the strategy where you have to like create a balance between a fast-paced growth and also handling the technical debt. I mean, this is this is kind of inevitable and almost every engineering team has to go through this loop where they are under a hyper-growth cycle at some point and they create technical debt at that point. How exactly, in your view, should that be handled? What as an engineering leader or as an engineering manager, should you consider while taking on that call, whether to build it this way or that? Um, I have a, a simple, I, I don't say I'm right. You know, I, it's just my opinion. It's just my experience. So that's my model that I have in my mind. I might, might be helpful, might not be helpful. But how I see it is there are several phases and you need to act according to the phase. Um, in a startup. And so the first thing is for me, from a product perspective, um, startup product perspective is you build a prototype, you know? So you go in and you did a, build a prototype where you can evaluate the idea, how it would look like in general. And you can show around the prototype to investors, to employees, to people, to friends. That's a prototype phase. And you can do no code development. You can do whatever you like. You can do a click dummy. You can do uh, PowerPoint slides. It's not important. That's the first phase, a prototype with a clear goal of getting people interested, evaluating the general idea, how, would, how it would look like. Then you get into MVP and see what would the minimal product would look like that you could bring to market. You know, what's the entry product? What's the market entry product? You need to build the MVP. That's the second phase for me. Then you have the third phase. And the third phase is about finding product market fit. So you need to iterate and really work hard to find product market fit. And when you have product market fit, you will feel it. Some of my coaches get into that mode and they feel it. it. Everything gets easier. People come to you, want to buy from you. So this is product market fit. And after product market fit, last phase, last relevant phase, there are some others in the, in the future, but last relevant phase is scaling. You know, So you have prototype, MVP, PMF, uh, and scaling. And um, what I see... About technical debt, uh, what I see is in the beginning, it's okay to have technical debt. So I would not care about technical debt in an MVP or uh, until getting PMF, product market fit. 
I would really totally concentrate on these two things. And if I accrued uh, technical debt, that would be fine with me, you know. I try to minimize it by having the right engineering culture in place, not doing stupid things, but overall, total focus, getting PMF, getting MVP, perhaps to get an investor to get into the market and PMF to find traction. And then I would think about tech debt and have a clear strategy to get off tech debt and remove it. A lot of tech debt, essentially, I think is accrued because of two reasons. First reason is tech is not aligned to business. So business moves here, tech moves here. And the ever-widening gap is kind of a technical debt because it's like we can't move there because we're here, and you know. And the other thing is that uh, a lot of companies want uh, tech engineers in startups want to scale too early and they put things in it and they add abstractions and they try to scale before they need to scale. And what happens is they get a lot of technical debt, not in the form of bad code, but in the, in the form of bad abstractions. Right. Makes you sense. know, and, uh, and I, would, I would be cautious about, I, whenever they tell me, oh, I need to prepare for scaling, I say, no, why? I mean, first, you can't anticipate the future, so probably we'll build the wrong things. So always don't do stupid things, like do yeah. the easy stuff. Have several servers and, you know, don't do, I have some clients who have one server. Don't do that, um, you know, but don't scale too early because also on the other hand, you will find out things, at least I found out things when I was in hyper growth uh, startups that things break that you did not think about, you know, the things that are breaking are things you're not have thought about. So I think it's, it's don't do something stupid, but don't try to scale too early. Um, did that a little bit yeah. answer the question about technical Absolutely. depth? I think it, it puts a lot of perspective in place. We are also going through that journey right now, and I totally understand what you are trying to emphasize. And I think it's a very good piece of advice because the need of the R is to build, find that suit, not to build something perfect today. Because for that, we have time. We just need to yes. build something which is just good enough. And yeah. it serves the purpose. So it's we should very, very it. difficult to, to achieve product market fit. Uh, you know, course, a, yes. a lot of they, they, a lot of companies fail there because they think they have it, but they haven't. So yeah. and I would not think about technical debt until I have traction. Makes sense. Makes sense. Absolutely. Thank you so much for answering this. With that, I would want to move on to something where I'm sure you would be coaching a lot of people on uh, where they transition from a manager to an engineering leadership position. I mean, the first transition is, of course, from an IC to a manager, but then the journey from a manager to a leader. I would love to hear from you. What should be the reason behind it? When is the right point? Uh, the inspiration? Just tell me about what, according to you, is the right point for somebody to move from a management position to a leadership position. I'm not so sure there is such a huge difference and I also, I, I felt like I was always kind of a leader because like in a, and I don't want to be, Stefan knows everything and does everything right. and It's not about that. But as a kid running around in gangs, doing super things, 10 year old kid, uh, I always thought like, I was often the one telling people what to do, where to do, what, to, what stupid things to do next, uh, you know, or what intelligent things to do next. So right from the beginning, I felt like um, natural to me to standing in front and showing directions. And I think that's about leadership. And the most important thing about being a leader is giving directions. You know, like, this is where we want to go to. Um, so you need to have a vision 
and you need to tell people, we want to go there and remind people that you want to go there because a leader is someone who leads and uh, you lead people by leading them somewhere. I mean, you can lead them in a circle, but you <laughs> lead people in a circle. So yeah. you will lead people somewhere. So a leader is someone who leads people somewhere. And to me, that's having a vision and leading people towards the vision, which is kind of a golden future. Um, and that's leadership to me. Whereas manager is, is a lot of about administrative stuff and taking care of people and being people manager and all of these things. The difference to being a leader is, um, to me, is having a vision and leading people, have a clear opinion where to go and lead people there because you believe that's the right direction to go. Makes sense. Makes sense. Perfect. I think when we have that feeling, so what I, I would love to share what I feel that being a leader, uh, please comes with something which is very core is being able to comprehend yourself, like explain yourself to others in the best way possible by being humble, not by being somebody who's a hero or being alpha in the team. And and most yes. most of the times we feel that. I mean, this is a quality that you have. I'm sure I, I feel it. I, I just mentioned in the beginning also. I think that this comes very obvious to you, but I think one of the things that I feel the leaders should have is uh, the humbleness, the groundedness, and being one of those people with whom you are working. It's just a responsibility that you have taken up to give the direction to the team, but that doesn't gives you the power or the the superiority in in the, in that plan in that team. No, yeah. So no. that's something that people should yeah. be consciously aware of. I think to me, as I said, crucial is leadership says, this is what we're going to do. This is where we want to go. Um, and that's leadership to me. And it, it does not need to be that you're standing on the table shouting, people, yeah. go there or faster. You know, it's not, that's not, you can't be part of a crowd. And that's also something that I always, as a manager and leadership ideal, I was always part of the group. So I was not standing, standing on the sidelines. I tried not to stand on the sidelines and give directions. I was right. always trying to be part of the group, um, like in this, uh, I don't know, like in the movie, you know, like being a leader, but being part like the Glorious Seven or something. And being part of a group, you can be a leader by being part of the group. It's not something like you're directing the group around, you know, right. it's not, that can also be a leadership. If this is your style and if it's fine, then, but it was not mine. You know, yeah. leadership can yeah. be, can be part of the group. And you what? can be a leader without having a title. You know, there are a lot of, CT a lot of uh, great uh, developers who are obviously the team leader, the team lead, but are not the team lead, you know, because they take ownership and, and if it works fine for everyone, then that would be also fine for me. You know, so yeah, I don't have, need to have the title that, to be a that leader. That thing would have a little bit of a problem uh, in terms of people having that bias to follow what you're saying. And, and you need it at times. Uh, so I, I feel that you should be entitled in some way. Like e either it should come from the group itself that okay he is or she is the best person to be yeah. there to take decisions for us or the authority or not exactly the authority but the uh, upper management or the really existing leadership should define that okay this is the person whom you should be following now and then even if you become part of the clan and then work that ways it works pretty well but yeah I'm everyone to its own uh, that your thought is also correct. But yeah, no, I, one, one minor thing I think is, is like, I didn't go into the question why people should follow you, you know, you know, there, there can be various reasons why people should follow you and it can be because you're the boss and you just say so, 
But it can also be because uh, people trust you. You know, people usually follow you. I'd say if the vision you want to lead people towards is self-evident and great, you know, people say, yeah, that's a golden future. I want to be there. Um, and people trust you that you will be the person leading them there. You know, if they don't trust you, you can have the best vision, but if you don't, if people don't trust you to go get them there, you know, so there can be very, very different reasons why yeah, people yeah. follow you. Um, can be you with the boss or you, you know, but or you have the title, whatever, but it can also be because people trust you and you have to create a great vision where they want to be. Sure. Absolutely. I think one thing that comes to me is that when you move into that step and you want to be part of the clan and you want to be humble, it becomes difficult in one way is how you like push people to move faster or let's say deliver more impact, measure their efficiency and then tell them, okay, this is where you're working on. How do you do that? How you have been doing that as a leader, defining success for an engineering team and then measuring it. And while doing all this, taking care of the team, their well-being, how, how do you exactly do that? I think the first thing that a lot of CTOs are not doing, a lot of leaders are not doing, is expressing their expectations. Um, people, people have expectations of the team, of the company, of the individual, but they don't, do not talk about them. And then the person, the team, the organization fails because it does not uh, succeed towards the expectations, but the leader manager, whoever has not spoken about those expectations. So uh, a big failure um, in organizations and in managers I see is that they do not talk about their expectations and then are unhappy because people do not follow their expectations, fulfill their expectations that they have not talked about, which is obviously, yeah. you can't, yeah. I can't, I can't fulfill your expectation if you don't talk about them. But that's what I see too often. So the first thing, very, very, very first thing, if we talk about performance is, Talk about your performance expectations and talk about that performance is important to you and what performance means for you. How does performance look like? What is performance behavior? What is underperforming behavior? And performance is important. So what's your expectations? How do you judge people? How do you judge performance? How do you evaluate things? That's the first thing. Make it clear that performance is important or very important to you. And again, Little bit of a of a side sideline uh, side quest. Um, employees, developers hear so many things, so you need to repeat the important stuff. If they have heard from you five times that performance is important, they will think, okay, it looks like performance is important to Stefan, you know. But if you tell them only once, they hear so many things, they need to judge by themselves what's important, what's not. And if you tell them only once, they think, okay, that might not be the, you know. So it needs to be clear, clear expectation, performance is important. That's the cornerstone of everything. And then there are two things. The first thing is, is something like um, support the people, support, support the developers, you know, give them what they want. Like I, I, uh, <laughs> I have the famous story. I got into trouble because everyone in my department got uh, $300 headphones, but it was too loud. People could not concentrate. So everyone got a $300 or $350 headphone. Uh, which got me in a lot of trouble because like company did not understand why I was buying so many, like about 10,000 of euros uh, buying headphones. But if this is what, they, what you think they need, then do it. And um, so, so I was very close of letting, <laughs> I was, a lot of people were angry in top management. But if you think that's, that's the thing that people need to deliver top performance, and that's what I said, you want, company wants top performance, 
pays a lot of money for these developers, and then I can't give them a $350 headphone. Does not make sense, you know? So give them what, what developers need, environment, tools. So support them in every way you can to be performant. That would be the one way. That would be the one part. And the other part is hold them accountable for performance. So if you expect performance and you have the feeling that someone is not performant enough um, and is underperformer, tell the person. And again, tell your expectations Describe what you what you see, what you think is happening, and that you're unhappy with this. And then sometimes, more often than not, you're wrong. You know, I was wrong when I said someone to them. So this is someone. The person said, "Yeah, because this is because this is of this and this and this, and we hadn't anticipated that, and that's why this project is underperforming." And then I said, "Oh yeah, sure, you're right. I haven't thought of that." Yeah. You know, so I might be wrong with my perception of underperformance. But nevertheless, I talk about it um, and I hold people accountable for performance with all the support I can give them, you know. When you say that you set the expectations, like tell them what performance looks like, how exactly do you do that? Just give me an example. Is it some metrics that you're following? Is it some engineering KPIs that you would like to put up front that, okay, this is what we are going to look at when we are evaluating your performance? Is this what you're talking about? How do you bring objectivity to this process? That's the broader question I just wanted to understand. So the first thing is I always try to to steer everyone to an impact framework instead mm -hmm. of a velocity framework because otherwise performance is just uh, more features and faster features, right. uh, which is not which is not my understanding of performance. Um, so performances do things in a reasonably fast way. That's engineering performance with the right trade-offs between gold-plating things, overthinking things on one hand, and creating engineering hacks on the other. So hacks in a bad way, not in the in the, in the yeah. traditional good way, but in a bad way, uh, meaning. So so you need to make the right decisions. And if, for example, again, if, if someone takes two weeks for a development effort, and then I say, well, that's too long, I feel that's too long, and then I let, let explain why it took two weeks, and then... I might be wrong because it really yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I push for performance. So if whenever I see or team lead sees performance in a way, perform speed in a way that does not look right, uh, I go into it. But more normally, it's more about making the right decision when to stop. So how much engineering to put in and while not gold plating, um, having good quality code, low bug count, high testing coverage. For me, performance is more about... Um, exercising good decisions, making good decisions as an engineer, um, adhering to good engineering practices, and then working on stuff that has impact instead of being the fastest. You know, it's not... Makes sense. As an, again, as if, if I see someone who takes two weeks for something, and I think it should take two days, and it takes two weeks, I ask why it takes two weeks. It's not, it doesn't make sense to me. And then sometimes I'm right, the person is just not fast enough and needs to speed up. And yeah. needs to have other skills or more training or sometimes a little bit being pushed a little. But sometimes I'm also wrong. There's, there are quite good reasons that it takes two, two weeks. And then if if product comes to me, VP of product, and says, that's taking too long, and I'm convinced that two weeks was totally fine, then I say, oh, two yeah. weeks are totally fine. That's how we fast, how fast we are, you know? So, yeah. Got it. 
All right. I think thanks a lot for all the knowledge that you shared, the insights that you shared with us. It was an amazing, amazing talk. Would love to do it one more time sure. on different topics. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure, pleasure. having you, Stephen. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Kovitz. So see you next time. <laughs> Thank you.